0: Again, good morning. My name is Marjorie McClustivale Reader, and welcome to the crisis. Can we get the book? Handling a Crisis Workshop. I don't remember the exact title, so I apologize. Um, and And I'm your moderator for this meeting. Will those who care to please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, Okay, and before we get started, first off, which I'm doing myself now too, please turn off all electronics. Turn off or at least vibrate so we don't have that going on, please. Um, For clarification, this session is being taped. We only need release forms for the speakers because we will have questions from the audience, not shares. So just so you're clear, when you ask a question, if you want, give a fake name. Don't give your real name, but you're not going to sign a release because it's just going to be a question versus a share. Okay. And then to protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed, except for our fine people over here. And the opinions expressed here today are those of the individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or OA as a whole. The format for this session is as follows. We will have three speakers, allegedly. We have two of the three here and they will each share for 20 minutes followed by questions from the floor to the panelists and the topic is crisis handling situations that used to baffle us letting go of fear of financial insecurity and then this is from page 127 of the big book the head of house ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell his home he can scarcely square the account in his lifetime but he must see the danger of overconcentration on financial success Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress, it never preceded. And with that, I will turn it over to Ms. Kia.
1: My name is Kia, Compulsive Eater. Kia. I am so honored to be here today to be able to stand before you and talk about crisis. When they first told me, hey, do you want to talk about crisis? Well, my last year has been one crisis after another, and I just thought, wow, that is really something special. Um, To qualify briefly, just to get the numbers and the logistics out of the way, I've been in OA since December of 2001, so that's about 11 years. Um, I've had A period of five years of abstinence, a hell of two and a half years of relapse, and then now I'm two years abstinent again. And it has been an amazing journey, none of which I would change. I have lost in the neighborhood of 150 pounds. I did all the things with food that I'm sure some of you have and probably came up with some new ones. I mean, I've, I've been there with food. And because I want to stay as much on topic as possible, I'm going to probably spend a little less time qualifying in terms of all the things that I did that, you know, I could spend time talking about. But I, I just I really want to get to what happened and what's going on with me today and, and, and really be able to hopefully impart some of what it is that God has put inside me and give that to you guys today. Um. I want to start off by saying that my goal here is for truth. My goal is to impart truth, give truth, not put my spin, so I'm going to stick as much to the facts as possible. I'm going to be talking about my divorce, which has been an ongoing thing for the last 12 months and actually official about a month ago. And I wanted to make a commitment to you before I even get started that I don't want this to become about my ego and all of the things that, you know, all the ways I've been done wrong. I don't want to go there. What I want to really do is focus on the facts of what it is that happened, my role in it, what I learned, and hopefully be able to give that to you instead of it becoming something else that it's not really meant to be. I asked about 15 months ago for healing in my life. Be careful when you ask for healing, okay? (laughs) Be careful when you ask for healing, because when you do, everything that you can think of comes at you. And while it was, the only way that I can express this is like being set on fire. That's what going through a divorce is like, being set on fire and burning from like the inside out. It was that painful. Having said all of that, I wouldn't change a thing my relationship with God, all of the things that have transpired in this journey. I am so grateful to the pain. I'm so grateful to my ex, who in the middle of it, I didn't really know how I felt about her. But now, I I just don't even have words to express what has happened to me. So I'm going to start with August of last year when we were separated. And the proverbial crap, as they say, hadn't hit the fan yet. Okay. I'm at an OA retreat. It's a retreat on meditation. And this is in early August of last year. And I get a phone call on my cell. And this is at a meditation retreat. And normally, you know, I'm not trying to answer my phone during these kind of things. I get a phone call. And I didn't answer it, so I look and I see I have a voicemail. Something told me that I needed to go and check it. Just something in me said I needed to go do this. So I went outside and I checked it. I'm really glad that I did because the, the first call was my neighbor. From, and I had a home that I was living in with my ex and my, our kids. And then I had a condominium that I was renting. And so I had a tenant. And I was, I, the call was from my neighbor at the condo. And they were you know this person said, Kia, you need to come to your condo right away. There's an emergency. Come right away. All of a sudden, just everything in my mind that could be things that could be going wrong, You know, oh my gosh, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Is my house on fire? What's going on? Starting to panic a little bit, starting to freak out, but I'm remaining chill. Luckily, I was only 10 minutes away. The the retreat, um, the meditation retreat was only 10 minutes away from where I was living, the the, the condo that I was running. So it was actually perfect. Couldn't have been in a better location. So I get over there and come to find out the sheriff's department is there. The police department is there. like The SWAT team are there. This is what it is that happened at my, my residence, my condo. The tenant that I had, my property manager, had, um, had put in, into the property, he didn't let us know that he had a son who lived with him. We found out, I found out that day that he had a son living with him. Apparently, while my tenant was at work, his 23-, 24-year-old son was playing with a gun, gun went off, shot a hole through my neighbor's unit, and somebody could have been killed, It was like a whole big deal. They didn't know where he was, so they're all like they've got, like the SWAT team is trained on my unit. All the neighbors are outside. I mean, it's just a big old, you know, it's a big old deal. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, maybe we can work this out with the tenant. Maybe we're going to be able to get some, you know, tell him he's got to get the kid to move, all this and that. Well, I talk to my neighbor, and my neighbors are understandably upset. My big thing in wanting to work it out is that I'm in the process of separation, and my money situation wasn't good. How am I going to pay this condo note? How am I going to pay this condo note? If I don't have a tenant, if i got to kick him out, how's that going to happen? I talked to my neighbors, and they're like, he's got to go. He's got to go. And I couldn't really argue with them, so I told my my tenant he had to go. Now, you would think he could just leave because he knew he was in the wrong. It didn't work that way. He didn't just leave. I ended up having to evict him. Now, in the process of this, because I'm already in financial drama because of my divorce situation. At the time I didn't, at this particular point, I didn't know it was going to be a divorce. But I'm already in financial stuff with that. How is this kind of going to be paid? God, why now? I mean, of all the things, I'm already going through all this stuff. Why now? Why now? And then I'm thinking, you know what? I'm just gonna have to let this ride because I have no idea how this is gonna happen, how I'm gonna deal with this. So I have to say, and I'm just gonna leave it at there, and I'm gonna come back to what happened, I'm going to come back to what happened with the story about the tenant and all of that. Anyway, I ended up having to evict him. Okay, so fast forward, things just kind of blow up with my relationship. My ex, she moves out. Um, we end up going to court. Uh, it's a very, very ugly situation. I didn't have now half of the income that I had before to pay all of my bills, What is so unbelievable to me is that the resources to take care of this situation appeared from nowhere. Through this program, through God, through friends, through angels, and that's really the only way that I can describe it. Angels came in the form of you all to lift me up every place I thought I was going to fall, every place I thought, oh gosh, this is the time, I know this is the time, that it's not going to work out this time. And every single time, somebody kept my feet up on that water and kept me walking across that pond. I don't know how much more pond I have left. I hope I'm closer to the other side and closer to being to the next pond, because I'm sure that there's other stuff coming. But that in and of itself was a miracle. So let me start first with the attorney situation. Okay, I have... Unfortunately, this is this divorce is not my first rodeo. I wish I could say that it was. It was not my first rodeo. So I kind of I know attorneys and I know how they are. And if any of you are attorneys, I'm sure you're lovely people as a group. Okay, but my experience has not been so much with attorneys. And so I had interviewed a few. I ended up hiring one. Um, I'm trying to think, because I'm trying to be very careful about how I talk about her. So I'm trying, and not because I'm feeling hostile, but because I don't want it to become, you know, you get these kind, you know, these kind of things together, and I have had, if I've, you know, told the story, according to my ego, I'll have a whole room of you ready to hang her, and this is not what that's about, you know what I mean? So that's why I'm trying to think carefully before I speak. Okay. There was an emergency hearing, without going into details in specific, there was was an emergency hearing that I had to respond to, and there were some allegations made about me being a flight risk and wanting to take um, our twins, we have uh, twin daughters, um, and about me trying to take my twins out of the state. So it was a whole big deal. My attorney didn't really defend me in the way that I thought she ought to have and so i got a whole bunch of things put on me as far as like i had to surrender my passport i had to re- i couldn't leave the state i couldn't leave the county it was crazy stuff i mean really crazy stuff that if my attorney had been um, a little bit more proactive would have probably not come to pass so after a series of trying to call her she's not calling me back and this is all of course after money has been has changed hands um not getting the response that I want. I'm thinking, you know what, I need to get somebody else. Now, it was program friends. I'm sitting at a pool, at their pool, talking to them about my lawyer situation. You know what, Kia? I happen to know somebody who's a fabulous attorney. And this person who um, ended up representing me, we're good friends now. This woman ended up, even though I'm not going to tell you, if I told you how much she costed, you'd probably fall out in your chair. And the very fact that I, the resources were in place for me to be able to have this person as opposed to somebody else, that in and of itself was a miracle. So my program friends who referred me to her, they were miracles in my, in my recovery in this process. My attorney, let me tell you what my attorney did. When we got to the settlement place, She said, you know what, Keon, I'm not going to charge you anymore for my services. Five grand is about what it is that she gave me from just not charging me, because I was into her for that much. $5,000 is what she saved me. And tomorrow I'm going to have lunch with her. I've stayed at her home. She has been such an amazing um, partner in this path, another one of the angels that has been set in my way to help me through So how did it all go? This is a good question at this point. The house. We had this big house. This house that, you know, was okay affordable on two incomes when she left and, you know, she wasn't able to contribute financially to the bills of the house anymore. There was no way in the world that I was going to be able to keep the house. I mean, not for a few months, not for anything. And all I could do is say, God, I have no idea what we're doing with this house, but you're going to have to come up with something. Within a week, after I had talked to my real estate angel, who had sold us the house four years ago, she calls me. I'm in a rush because I'm in the process of doing a lot of different things. She says, you know, Kia, I have somebody who might be interested in your house. I'm like, yeah, okay, send them over. It's not clean. I mean, I'm in the process of doing stuff. It's not clean, but if you want to bring them by, bring them by. My real estate agent brought by this couple. They made an offer on my house. They made an offer on my house, full price didn't lose money. I mean, I should have lost money. Everybody in here, I don't have to explain the real estate market to you, okay? I should have lost my shirt. I should have lost my shirt. There's no reason at all that I should be able to stand here before you and not be in bankruptcy, not have any late pays, to have my credit intact at all, because I did so many things to ensure that that I would be in bankruptcy. I made so many decisions years ago, trying to be a people pleaser, trying to um, be good enough, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And it wasn't even so much that I was like, I'm a, not really a materialistic person per se, and a lot of it I wasn't even spending on myself. I'm, I'm good for you know not spending on me and spending on you. Good for all of that. Um, but yeah, I, the decisions that I made a long time ago should have guaranteed that. It was only because I gave the situation to God that things happened. I had a vehicle that, it was a third vehicle, that my um, ex and I had, and she wasn't able to contribute to the cost of the vehicle. I said, God, I have no idea what we're going to do with this truck. What are we going to do with it? Um, Because uh, you know I can't afford it. You know I can't afford it. And I was upside down on the truck. truck was in my name. So if credit was going to be damaged, it was going to be my credit. Within a week and a half, two weeks of me giving that to God, a check came in the mail for the... Five or six thousand dollar difference between what I owed on that truck and what the truck was worth, so I was able to pay off that vehicle. I don't have enough time to get into the real ins and outs because it wasn't very just. It wasn't really simple in terms of the truck just going and selling it. The DMV had made an error on the title, and they recorded the mileage as like three hundred thousand miles. I couldn't sell the truck without getting that corrected. And anybody in here knows how the DMV works? It's not a quick process. Even when they have made the error, not a quick process. And they said, oh, and by the way, it may take three or four, five months in order to correct this. And I didn't have three or four months worth of truck payments in order to not damage my credit and all that kind of stuff. But I had a piece, and I knew, you know what? I don't have to worry about it. You have this all figured out. You've got the payments. If I have to make them... I don't have to worry about all I have to do is do the footwork. So I'm contacting the DMV, I'm making connections, people actually care about me, these strangers I've never met. I know people in Sacramento now because uh, I was calling them and, you know, by the way, what's going on with uh, you know the title change and all this and that. I have made friends in places that I, I I wouldn't know if they came up to me now, but they were all working on my behalf to get the situation. So instead of 3 or 4 months it takes most people who are not trying to walk the walk, six weeks. And I had the title changed. God had the title changed. The miracles have just kept coming. And I made a deal with God. I said, you know, if you keep whatever it is that you throw at me, it's all good. And every time the miracles happen, you keep them coming, and I will tell anybody who will sit long enough for me to tell them, I will tell anybody. And the miracles have continued to come but only as long as I was willing to trust and believe. Let me make sure that I get back to what happened with my condo. Little did I know while I'm sitting here tripping about having to make those condo payments, little did I know I wasn't going to have a place to stay a month after that happened. By the time that that eviction went through, and did I mention that my tenant, even though he made me evict him, left my condo in relatively perfect condition? Did I mention that? Okay, so you know how people who are evicted leave property? Does anybody in here know how people do that? (laughs) You mean, you're lucky if your toilets are working. You're lucky if you've got reasonable plumbing. You're you're lucky if any of those things are true. Left my house, even though he made me have to go to court to get rid of him, left my house in pristine condition. I just moved in. Took me a month to kind of get it the way that I wanted it. Moved right in, even though when I bought this condo, I had no idea I'd be coming back four years later with two kids. It was absolutely perfect for that. And God knew I needed a place to stay, So that's how come he has his son move in with a shotgun that goes off two months before I need somebody to be out of it. Because it was rented up until August of this year. So all of these things happening. And that was probably the one situation that I just walked and said, you know what? I can't even deal with this guy. You're going to totally have to have it. And that was the thing that probably went the easiest without my intervention Everything else I meddled in, I'm going to be honest, everything else I meddled in a little bit, that was the one thing that went perfectly without my effort. Letting go of fear about how things are going to turn out with my money. Today, because now I don't have the income to do the things I was doing before. I have given up all my credit cards. I live on cash. And if I don't have cash enough to do it, then it doesn't get done. If there's something that pops up and needs money to pay for it, I just say, if you want me to do it, you're going to have to figure out where the money comes from. And the money has come. So at the end of last year, before I, you know, when things were at their worst, I didn't have enough money to meet my monthly expenses. I had to get help from my parents and thank God for them. But they did. They helped me until I could do for myself. I am now in a place, I have thousands in the bank right now. I have more than enough to cover my expenses. I have a budget for everything. God has really taken away the fear of financial insecurity. He has taken away the fear that I can't handle things. Whatever it is he gives me, the solution is already there. The solution is already there. There's not one problem that I have today that I don't already have, you know what, I don't have to worry. I mean, it, it, it comes to where I don't worry about the few times, like my water was turned off. This happened like two weeks ago. My water was turned off when I got home from work, and I'm starting to panic a little bit. Well, how is this going to happen? The kids are coming home tomorrow. Oh, my gosh, what's going to go down? You know, okay, good. Um, and the water was back on before I even knew to get excited and upset. My time is winding down. And I have to say, I had like like a million things that I wanted to talk about <laughs> other than that. But what I will say is this. I had to let go of how the relationship with me and my ex would be. We now are really building a foundation to be really good co-parents together. The custody arrangement that we have now is not what I thought that I wanted, but it was exactly what it was that I needed not knowing where your kids are 50% of the time, I'm going to tell you that is something that could really just tighten your insides and have them completely locked up. But God has my girls, so I don't have to worry about them. And when I'm here, where I, as I, at one point I would have been freaked out, I'm here enjoying myself because I know they are good. And so am I. That's what I think I've learned the most throughout all of this. Is that I know how to be okay no matter what the circumstances, no matter what somebody's doing to me, no matter what it is that's happening. And I've really learned to let go of all of the fear. Thank you for letting me share.
0: Thank you, Kia. We'll now hear from um, Millie.
2: Hi, I'm Millie. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. I want to thank the committee for um, letting me speak on crisis. Um, I certainly have been going through one for the past. Let's see. It was August third on 2011 that uh, this um, big crisis started happening in my life. Um, So I thought I could speak to this this panel on on this subject I am a hundred pounder I have been abstinent since February 21st 2002 and uh, during that time I have managed to stay abstinent and through this last crisis since August I did gain between 15 and 20 pounds and you'll find out why when I go into what my crisis was but I've lost nine of those pounds, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful for this program. So I am going to read a little bit in the beginning to calm myself down here because I'm nervous, and then I will get started and let you know what my crisis was. So I'm going to read from the, this AA book, Daily Reflections, and it's on June 14th, and the title is When Going Gets Rough. And it's a design for living that works and rough going. And that's from our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 15. When I came to OA, I realized that OA worked wonderfully to help keep me sober. But could it work on real-life problems, not concerned with eating? I had my doubts. After being sober for more than two years, I got my answer. I lost my job, developed physical problems. My diabetic father lost a leg, and someone I loved left me for another. And all this happened during a two-week period. Reality crashed in. Yet, AA was there to support, comfort, and strengthen me. The principles I had learned during my early days of sobriety became a mainstay of my life, for not only did I come through, but I never stopped being able to help newcomers. AA taught me not to be overwhelmed, but rather to accept and understand my life as it has unfolded. So that being said, um, my crisis is a little different. It's been a physical crisis that I've had going on. I... um, Due to my morbid obesity most of my life, I had severe joint problems. So I came to uh, need a knee replacement and a hip replacement on my right side. Um, I'm 65 years old now. And so this was when I was 63. He said, you have severe osteoarthritis in your knee and your hip, and you need a knee and hip replacement. We need to do your knee first. So I had my my, um, knee surgery August 3rd of 2011. Six weeks after my knee surgery, I got a phone call early in the morning that my son, who lived in Santa Rosa, I live in San Diego, had been jumped when he left a a nightclub at 2 in the morning and was in intensive care in the hospital. He had severe brain trauma. He had brain bleed in the front, brain bleed in the back. And... I'm like, you know, I'm on a walker still, and I have to fly up to, I don't have to, but I flew up to Santa Rosa. He had a host of friends to help take care of him, but I couldn't not be there as his mother. So um, I'm going to keep that short. He was in intensive care for four days in the hospital of a total of 12 days, and by the grace of God, he's fine today. And um, he's, you know, he, he's doing okay. The only, Real problem he has from that whole thing is he lost his sense of taste and smell. And, you know, he is not a compulsive overeater, you know, in my, albeit humble opinion, he has the other side of the disease. But that's, you know, come, he comes by it right, rightly. So that was on uh, in September. And then I had my hip schedule to be done October 11th. So I had the, the knee, August 3rd, my son's crisis. My hip, October 11th. And at the end of October, I noticed that there was something wrong with my knee. And actually, I'd been having a lot of pain in my knee since I had my hip done. So I called the doctor, and I went in, and my knee joint had slipped. Turns out he did the surgeries in the wrong order. He should have done my hip first and then my knee. And so when he did my knee, my hip, my medial lateral ligament snapped. And so on November 17th, I had to have an allograft ligament replacement, which is a cadaver ligament, put in my leg. Two weeks after that, that failed. My knee joint slipped again. And I didn't mention to you I'm self-employed. I'm a self-employed hairstylist, so I get no income when I don't work. I had planned on the knee and the hip surgeries and um, had planned on taking that amount of time off, but I hadn't planned on any of this other stuff. So here I am. I'm crippled. I'm on a walker. I can't walk. I can barely stand, but I have to go to work. I have no choice. Um, I then started looking for a new doctor. I was told I needed a total knee revision, which meant they had to go in and take everything out that had been done and put another, another uh, joint in there. So I, I found a wonderful doctor who specialized in lower leg reconstruction, and on May 25th of 2012, I had a total knee revision. Now, during that time, I had, from, from the time that they, the, fr- the first joint slipped, I had a brace on my leg that went from my hip to my mid-calf. You know, it, it just goes, it goes on and on. I don't want to stay in the crisis too much, but it's been a horrendous journey. I'm still walking with the cane. I had to have help getting up these stairs over here because I can't. There's still a lot of things I can't do. But I can do so much more than I could do just a few months ago. It's um, it's been a journey that has been humbling and um, enlightening. It has um, I, I can't tell you what 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 has happened to me inside through all of this. The I have had to to just. Let go completely. So this is, this, you know, the, the theme of this con- whole convention. I've had to completely let go. It's totally out of my hands. Every time I would go to the doctor, I would get bad news. So it would be one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, until after the May 25th surgery. And, um, you know, I may never be the same, but at least I'm not going to be horribly crippled like I, that, like I thought might happen. Uh, of course, my head goes to, you know, to the worst. I have to, you know, it, when I got, would get the bad news, I would immediately go into fear. And and the fear would consume me. You know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to live? How am I going to pay my bills? Where am I going to stay? What's going to happen? And God just kept bringing, bringing things to me. Um, the people in this program have been a tremendous 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 help to me. They've had fundraisers for me. They've they've, you know, brought me food. I was off work for 18 weeks in 9 months. I was off work for 18 weeks. I was in a skilled nursing facility a total of 5 weeks, 2 weeks one time, 2 weeks another time and a week another time. Uh, they brought me food. They brought me meetings. They came and picked me up. They took me to meetings. They, um, you know, I, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you, the support and the love, and the, and not just the people in this program either, people in the community, my clients, my coworkers. I would get envelopes on my front door with gift certificates to to have people come anonymous, anonymous notes on my door, that people would, would leave me um, gift certificates to have people come into my home and help me to the local restaurant down the street where I could get food. I just, you know, just, it's just been an amazing journey. And um, during all of this, it would have been very easy for me to, to lay down in my bed which I did a lot of, <laughs> and pull the covers up over my head and and um, just, you know, say, why me, why me, why me? You know? And I am not perfect. I would do that for a moment. I would do that for a moment. And then I, you know, then I would say, Millie, you know, nobody did this to you on purpose. It just happened. And what are you going to do to help make it better? You know, I've learned in this program that shit happens, and then I get to take action. You know, I have to take action. I have had to take continual action to, to better myself. You know, it would be very easy for me just to sit in a chair and prop my feet up and not do anything. But that's not going to keep a roof over my head. That's not going to make me better. That's not going to allow me to be able to come to conventions. I couldn't come to conventions or or go to retreats or do anything like that for, you know, a couple of years. It's just been recently, you know, I went to the birthday party. That was the first big thing that I did, and I didn't know that I'd be able to do it. And I went to a retreat a few weeks ago and and that was amazing. I mean, and I couldn't do what I had done before. I had to drive back and forth from the cabin to the to the where the meetings were and whatnot, but I managed. I was there. So you know, where there's a will, there's a way. With God's help, I can do anything. And I just have to step up and do it. It doesn't just happen. I have to take the action in this program. Helps me to do that You know it, it, um, when, when the fear would, would Overtake me You know I would, I would sit at The books I, read, I read, read meditation books Every morning I pray I meditate I write I, I talk to my sponsor On a regular basis I would work through it You know I would work through it And I, I started looking at, at the flip side You know One time I was at a, at a Stoplight and on the way to the doctor, just feeling so sorry for myself, oh, i got to go to the doctor again, and I took this brace, and I did this and that. And a gentleman walked in front of me who had three prosthetics, one arm and two legs. And I said, you know, thank you, God, that's not me. You know, I, uh, here I am with a limp, and I think I'm all screwed up, you know. And... And it, this is my problem, I understand that, and it has been difficult for me, but things could have been almost, oh, so much worse. You know, My doctor who did the revision told me that the surgery that he did on my leg was a surgery of last resort before amputation. But it has worked. And I have recently had to start working harder because I was having a very difficult time even walking with my cane and so I went to him and said, am I going to be on a cane forever? And he said, no, not if you want to get stronger. And so I've had to work, you know. I, I'm back in physical therapy. I'm, I'm uh, going to the gym. I'm working out in the pool, and I have to do that on a regular basis. But it's, but it's okay. It's okay, and it's made me... I, when I take positive action, I see so much more action. You know, the more I do, the more I can do. The less I do, the less I can do. So I come here. You know, it's hard for me to get around. It's hard for me. to When they put my room way over on the other side, I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? Well, one step at a time. I put one foot in front of the other, and I get over here. You know, and, and it's... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm doing great. It's, um, I, I get to accept what's going on to me. I know that God has a plan for me, and I don't know what it is. You know, I'll get in in the fear of, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to, I, how am I going to take my care of myself when I get older? Um, what's going to happen? You know, and I'm able to to let that go to let it go and to live in the moment. I didn't have those skills before I came to this program. I did not have those skills. I didn't I didn't know about staying in the moment, you know. I it's not that I didn't know about it. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to take that action. You know, th- this is a this is a design for living that works. I can, you know, Pick up my books. I can read. I can, I can go to a meeting. I can get help. Uh, I've learned to ask for help. I see the joy that other people get out of helping me. Now that's a new one. That's a that's a real new one. It has allowed me to ask for help. I had to ask for help to get up on this stage. I couldn't get up here by myself. You know, and I, you know, I just you know. Let go, you know. Let go and ask for help. It's it's a it almost it almost reminds me of being a kid again. Children aren't afraid to ask for help. You know, they'll just look at you and say, "Aren't you going to help me? I can't do this by myself." You know, and and you know, I can ask people today to, you know, will you help me? Most of the time, I don't even have to ask. People will just say. Let me help you do that. Can I get that for you? You know, can I do that? If I can do it myself, I want to do it myself. Because like I said, the more I do, the more I can do. The more action I take, the, the, the better off I am. The, the more I can do. And it's, um, let me see here, where am I? Um, You know i if I want to recover physically emotionally and, and spiritually, I have to take action in all those areas and it 's the, the uh, they sort of all meld together. I would have never thought that having a physical problem like i 've had would make me spiritually stronger, but it has in so many ways, and I can see. How that happens for people? I mean, it's um, and and mine has never been life threatening. Uh, I know people that have had life threatening things, and uh, that really brings you close to God. But this has too. This has brought me very close to God. I you know I just I just get to let go all the time and accept what's happening. And it's uh, people, people ask me, well, how do you? I don't see how you do it. I don't see how you've gone to work and, and done all those things. I lost a lot of my clientele. I lost about a third of my clientele, so I'm making like a third less money than I was making. But somehow or another, the money has just come. I've got everything I need. I had the money to come here, I had the money to go to the retreat. I had, you know, I don't have to put it on credit cards. My 31-year-old son just moved home with me a month ago. He needs a change of direction, and he needed some help. And he came home with some money, but not much. And um, so, you know, I get to just trust that God is going to take care of me. And it's, it's an easy thing for me to do today, you know, as long as I stay Number one, I need to stay abstinent because if I don't stay abstinent, if I don't keep my food clean, then I get into the self-pity and the self-loathing and the, and the shame. And when I start doing that, it snowballs downhill. And then everything, everything in my life goes bad. When I keep my food clean, you know, I um, can have the clarity of mind to work my physical, emotional, and spiritual program. Um, there's a lot of emotions tied you know with all of this. I feel I feel elderly. <laughs> I mean I'm getting old. there's no question about that but I you know walking around with a limp and you know just uh, it, it's, it's been it's been hard but you know I'm like, so what Millie, so what? You know, you get to deal with it. And, you know, God has a plan for you, and you don't know what it is. Today, right here, right now, right in this moment, everything is fine. I have enough money. I have all the love and support of my family, my friends, my sponsor, my, you know, my son. You know, I I have, oh, I forgot to mention I lost my dog also during this time of, of um eleven and a half years. And um, you know, my loving sponsor went with me when I had to have him put down. You know, it I just if I didn't have this this program, it'd be face down in every part of the disease that I ever had and I had other parts of this disease also. You know, I would have been cigarettes, drugs, booze, food, all of it I'd have been face down. But by the grace of God today and with the help of of program and my higher power, right here, right now, everything is okay. And I thank you very much for letting me speak and have a great convention.
0: Thank you, Millie. Jack is our final speaker.
3: I'm Jack. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Jack. I think it's kind of funny. Um, I wasn't supposed to be on the panel, and, and I'm co-chair of getting the keynote speakers, and Diane, who has done a great job getting all the panels and the marathons and all that, is doing that stuff. So this part isn't true. She runs up to me frenetically this morning and says, Oh, my God, oh, my God, my third speaker didn't show up. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Can you, can you? I said. She said, Will you do it? Sure, Diane, I'll do it. And I said, What's the topic? She goes, crisis intervention, crisis uh, handling, <laughs> I guess I was supposed to, I, 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 I thought it had a bizarre twist to it. Um, so this is what I do. I mean, what I, let me tell you real quick, I've been in program 31 years. I came into program at 29 and a half, and I had already been 305 and 170 and 276, and I I lost 100 pounds a couple of times, and um, I was. By the way, thank you for the opportunity. I don't really. I'm old, so I don't really use the all the apparently all the functions that this little thing performs. I know how to email on on my on my computer, and I know how to make a phone call. I'm still looking for the uh, the thing to go like this, but so doesn't doesn't go like that. <laughs> and so while I was sitting there, I was going to disturb somebody and ask for a pen to take notes. I never bring notes when I speak, but. Uh, I hadn't really had a lot of time to think about this, which is probably much better for both of us, all of us. And But I, I figured, I know there's a function on here, not an, even an app. I don't have to do anything. It's like built in, apparently, that said notes. So I pressed notes. I've never pressed it before. I had the phone for, I don't know, uh, 93 years. And I pressed notes, and a piece of legal yellow paper shows up. <laughs> which is very near and dear to my heart because though I'm not a lawyer I am, in my disease I'm a law school graduate actually and um, so anything you say about lawyers, I agree um, but I just want to get the story out of the way just to give a rough idea so I came in the program at 29 and a half I had already lost and gained a couple hundred pounds a few times um, I'm the adult child of a Jewish accountant which for some of you may give you a rough idea why I'm here uh, and I keep saying I had a pretty charmed life, actually. When I came here, though, uh, I graduated law school, gained back 100 pounds in law school, and then drank and took Valium. So uh, that's how I got... That's how I handled the crisis of law school. Um, I really didn't have any coping skills. And I was trying to write down columns, which apparently is really hard to do when you don't know anything about how to space and press buttons. But I, I don't know if I had any crises in my upbringing, except for on Mother's Day, 1967, my mom died. And so it was, I thought it was a bizarre... Yeah, isn't that weird? It was a bizarre... We had a very normal... We lived in the, the Jewish equivalent of the middle-class Stepford Wives neighborhood or, or Wisteria Lane or whatever that place is. It was a very normal family. My, adult, my father's an accountant. My mother was a housewife. My sister's tall, thin, and blonde and doesn't have this disease and pisses me off. Um, and I was fat, always fat. And I realized that in the right-hand column I was going to write down how I used to handle situations which, which baffled me And now that I've mentioned law school, that's how I handled things then. I I gained the 100 pounds back, which I had just lost in in, uh, UCLA undergrad, saying that now that I'm thin and I have a new girlfriend and a new car and a new briefcase and a new suit, (laughs) ain't got no symptom, ain't got no problem. Uh, Oh, contraire. Uh, But then I found out that uh, screwdrivers tasted good, and Valium made me feel good, and food always worked. So, how I handled law school was that, that's what I did. And then the other thing was, when my mom died, I was 14, and it was in the last, the end of my first semester in high school, and uh, I ate. Uh, and then one of the I think kind of funny this, is, this I'll, I'll get out of the past, but I grew up in the uh, uh, little Israel in the Fairfax area of Los Angeles, and um, there was a fat burger that opened up there near the Beverly Center. I think it was the first one. And at the time, my dad had a 69 Buick LeSabre, and uh, I was in my eating days, and I heard about Fat Burger and I tried it once, and it was really, really good. But the problem for me in the early 70s was that neighborhood was beginning to change. And uh, late at night, as the evening got later, the uh, complexion of the population in that, uh, restu- that restaurant, such as it was, uh, changed. And I, w- I was scared because I was the only white person there in the middle of the night and I figured I got an a- I got a solution to my problem here's my solution I developed a twitch <laughs> I mean I didn't really develop a twitch I chose to develop a twitch and I chose to talk to myself out loud <laughs> and People of all races left me alone. And not, not unique to the African American race. A lot of people kind of looked the other way. But you know what? It accomplished my purpose. <laughs> I could go, I could eat my food, and nobody bothered me. Uh, so that's how I handled situations. The other thing that was a big uh, thing that I'm thinking about it was I lied a lot. A lot. And they weren't, I'm cash register honest. My dad uh, worked for the Defense Department, He top security clearance, good guy, and he taught me the right way to do things. And and as I've gotten older in program, I'm becoming a little more connected to my religion, which forces me on another note to to kind of live in the up and up. But I didn't always then. And I'm reminded of the page, if any of you have the third edition of the big book, uh, the previous edition on page 482, is a page, uh, there's a story called Bell of the Bar. Which, why they took it out of that book, I don't know, because they took it out of the book that they could put in Norse stories by minorities, African-Americans, uh, uh, gay and lesbians, kids, young people, and all that. And the story was written by a woman. So I never quite understood why they took it, that story out. But Bella the Bar, page 482, third edition, and it talks about honesty. And they say it's the easiest thing for me to understand is because it's the exact opposite of everything I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> and the best example of that was... I went up to my dad about fifth. My dad passed away last year, so he's kind of on my mind a lot. And we were real close because he was my both my mother and my father. I used to joke with him. He was an an okay father. And I said, it's just a terrible mother, just a terrible mother. <laughs> um, actually, another miracle of recovery was that when I came into the program, he was uh, numbers one through like 93 on my resentment list. And by time, maybe within the last 15 years, uh, I've been asked by people to help them deal with, relationships with their parents and by the end my, my relationship with my dad was, could not have been better. I did the eulogy at his funeral I talked to him, uh, I was with him a couple of hours before he died and it was all good so when my mom died I gained like 14,000 pounds in an hour and a half and um, and uh, when my dad died my weight I am assuming my weight stayed the same I mean my pants still fit so I assume it's the same um, so where was I? Um, hmm? Honesty, page 42. So I went to my dad about uh, 10, 15 years ago, and I said, I, I, I've got to kind of tell you something. You know, my dad is like, oh, yeah? What, what? I said, well, I've been lying to you about something. And I'm thinking he's thinking, you know, who knows what he's thinking. And I said, you know, all the times I've come to your house and said, oh, my God, it's 12 minutes of the hour. I've got to, I've got to be somewhere in nine minutes. I can stay for three. And then I would rummage through the refrigerator, use your phone, uh, bo- <laughs> borrow some money, and uh, and then leave I said, I've never really had anywhere to go and no time to be there. And he said, I know. I said, excuse me. <laughs> He's known all along. I was full of shit. So that's what I came to program with. Now, this is how I handle things in, in recovery today, I'd like to think. First of all, two and a half years ago, if you're new, I haven't, I've had a very blessed life. I wouldn't call myself remotely a prince. However, my, I work hard for what I do. I have an office in Brentwood in Los Angeles, which is, which is a good part of town. And when I go on panels to my graduate school, they always bring back, uh, uh, license, I'm a therapist, and they bring back licensed therapists to talk to the students about life after grad school. And one of them says, you know, I work for $3 an hour in, uh, in, in, in Compton, and there's bullet holes in my walls and in my car and in my, in my, in my, in my, my shirt sleeve. And then I say, you know, I, I, I work in Brentwood, and I take cash only, and I don't take insurance. And uh, probably the average education of the clients I work with is on the low end of, you know, one graduate degree and, you know, six-figure six incomes and, or seven-figure incomes. And so I've had a very charmed life on the one hand. And then I get very apologetic because I still weigh 305 pounds. So something was amiss. Um, I've had crises in program. I got divorced. I got married in program. I got divorced in program. Uh, my father died in program. I had a, a cancer scare. to give you a rough idea. I had a, a, a scare. I was, in, I was in the desert. I, was, when I used to play golf. Uh, I was playing golf and I stepped on a pin uh, in the locker room, a safety pin. And they said, we got to give you, you know, talk about lawyers, they, they may go to the urgent care and get shots and get all this. So I did all the requisite things and that night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was black and blue from the waist down. Entirely black and blue. I got up to pee and I showed my then wife that I'm in deep stuff and we came here, we came to Eisenhower and the guys took a bunch of blood work and they, they said, well, we don't know what you've got but there's two possibilities. Either you have an allergic reaction to something like we've never seen before or you're pretty much gone dying of cancer. One or the other. One or the other. <laughs> They brought in five oncologists and hematologists, and they didn't know what it was. I don't know any—I I didn't know this, but you're supposed to have 150,000 to 450,000 platelets. I was down to 3,000, and it printed out, you're screwed. You know, and the little printout on the bottom, it said, you don't have a fucking chance. Um, so uh, I said, I'm going home to die. And the guy said, I wouldn't. And it was, if any of you know, if there's still a Dr. Dreisbeck in this city, uh, what a man, good guy. He said, I wouldn't go home if I were you. I said why not He said you'll die in the car You won't make it home you, if, you, if you scratch yourself If you uh, pick your gum if you, if you bite your nail If you have a car accident You'll bleed out So you know I, uh, That was a crisis and, and all I did I prayed a lot So now to get to the recovery I talked to my sponsor Probably five times a week now This is after 31 years I didn't do it for years. Uh, I wasn't as uh, fastidious and tenacious as I was. About two and a half years, T- Terrell is my sponsor, and he's been my sponsor for 15, 20 years. And about two and a half years ago, he was getting ready to fire me, and uh, and I said, "Why?" He says, "Because you don't do anything." And I said, if, "He said, if you have, if I have what you want, why don't you do what I do?" And I found a way to turn it around and make him wrong, which is really a unique talent of mine. Thus, the law school. Um, <laughs> And I decided I had two options. I could either drown or I could do what he said. And so I, I started calling in my food. I write in my food. I haven't missed one day. And I'm, I mean, I'm not obsessive about much of anything. But, but this, I haven't missed one day after 31 years. Now, in the last two years and change, I write my food in every day. I also am assigned reading. Uh, we generally go through paragraph by paragraph through the 12 steps of AA. Or for a while, it's OA or the big book. And I write. So the reading paragraph is, what, uh, an inch high to four inches high? And my writing is uh, four inches high to the side of one of those legal pad things. And I read it to him every day, five days a week, five days a week. And I do that every day. I have an abstinence that uh, no matter what, and I've been blessed. I've been blessed. When I came to the program, there were three men with long-term abstinence that I knew, and one of them said, I said, what do you do to get this program? And he said, work the steps and you'll be fine. I said, sounds great. Somebody else said, find God. Richie, you know, you know Richie. Richie. Uh, Hi, I'm Richie. He's got that big bushy mustache and a New York accent. And he says, "Uh, get right by God. I said, sounds great. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And so um, then I asked a guy named Larry W., who at the time had like 20 years, 15 years of sobriety and a bunch of abstinence. And he said, get a good food plan and everything will work from there. So I had three different angles on this, physical, emotional, and spiritual suggestions. I couldn't do the emotional. I mean, I was non-function. When I came to the program, I, could, I couldn't barely work anymore. I was just lost. And I wasn't even at my top weight. I wasn't even close to my top weight. I was nuts, thin. And, um, in fact, my goal weight when I came to the program was 180. And when I got to 180, I went to 170. And when I got to 170, I changed it to 160. When I hit 150, I got it. I, my goal weight became 150. I'm six feet tall. I looked like, I looked like, you know, like World War II uh, Eastern Europe, and, uh, but I was thin. And I was ecstatic about that. And you guys told me I looked crappy, which meant I would look really too thin, which I took as a compliment. Every bone in my body hurt. Every bone in my body, every piece of skin was black and blue, but I loved it. Uh, speaking of black and blue, I did not have cancer. It turned out to be an allergic reaction to some medicine that they gave me at the urgent care. And uh, it all turned around. And uh, when I found out I didn't have cancer, the first thing I did as I said, can I speak to the um, cafeteria? So I said I'd like to uh, speak to the director of food services, and it turned out to be. They said we'll call Spike. So I call Spike, and I'm expecting this, you know, New York Italian guy, and it's a woman. <laughs> Spike was a woman, and I said, "Look, I'm going to be here for a little bit. Let's let's work out the food thing." And I literally, as I recall, I told her how I eat, and she saw to it that it was accommodated. And It was bizarre. It was bizarre, but here's how the, this is. They're not crises, but this is how we handle situations. I was telling uh, Seema before, I was trying to tell Seema before (laughs) the movie about that. uh, uh, I was in uh, Boston 30 years ago with a woman in program, and uh, we were looking for an OA meeting, and we had a street name, and we didn't know the area at all. So I said, Let's get on the highway, and if it's a main street in the next six, seven miles, it'll come across the highway, and we'll find it. And it wasn't, but I saw a guy with a bumper sticker. A program bumper sticker. There's a couple. So the guy is, is driving, and I said, I got an idea. I got nothing to lose. We don't know where we are. If this doesn't work, we'll, we'll go have lunch. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> that solves everything anyway. can um, lot, kind of horror lots of lunch. Um, is your elbow okay, man? You okay? Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, so uh, we follow this car, left turn, right turn, right turn, left turn. They t- all of a sudden, I see the street with the name we're looking for. And the numbers are going in the right direction. And we see the church up ahead. And we pull up into the church. I say, I can't wait to think he wasn't going there. Oh. He never pulled into the driveway. He kept going. Wow. So do I believe? Do I not believe? He drove me to that parking. Lot. And this was—I wow. mean, this was like—I don't know—14 miles out of the little podunk crappy hellhole we were staying somewhere out of Boston. So I had no idea where I was. But that's the—that's the way it seems to work. Uh, I wanted to go to grad school in the early. By the way, he, he, when I went to law school, okay. So then I get asked to volunteer in a hospital program, working in an eating disorder hospital program, and then I get a job at that eating disorder unit, and then they tell me to go to grad school. And uh, this is being recorded, isn't it? Okay, so uh, well, it's too late for now. <laughs> I'll speak cleanly. Um, I said to my supervisor, go after uh, go yourself. And he said, as your supervisor, I'm supposed to tell you, I don't think you're supposed to talk to me like that. And I said, in case you weren't listening, I almost died in law school. I used to drink, eat, take Valium, and I used to go to Century City, and wonder how people jumped out of buildings that didn't have openable windows. And I figured, how do you do that? It's tall enough to kill yourself, but how do you get out? And so I'm thinking, you take a secretarial chair with the wheels and the heavy bases. (laughs) My friends are becoming doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, and I'm worrying how to get it. Some woman said to me at a meeting once that the best quote she ever had, she wrote it down. She said, you said your friends were getting mortgages and babies and cars and careers, and all you were worried about was getting lunch. And that kind of summarized it all. But um, so one more time, I'm getting old. Where was I? I don't know. Oh, help me. Oh, so I told my supervisor to go F himself, and he said, I said, in case you haven't been listening, grad school and I don't get along. And he said, you weren't in program then, so shut up and go to grad school. And quite to his surprise, not going to grad school, but the shutting up part, I actually went to grad school, graduated, got like almost all A's. I think I got one B+. And uh, that was in the... I graduated in 86. So this has only been about a, almost a 30-year career for me, even though it's my third career. So that's how I handled the crisis, of come in a program with disdain for my body, at not a particularly high weight, um, uh, uh, embarrassment about my career, selling life insurance, which if you do, that's fine, but it wasn't for me. Uh, having a, a previous failed career that was invested a lot of time and my father's money um, and uh, couldn't hold a relationship more than 20 minutes, uh, an hour, an hour maybe, on a, on a good day. And um, and I got divorced 20-something years ago, and I got married again in... Uh, I met her in 99, and we've been married since 01. And so... Uh, and we met at a Dodger game. She and, I, she and I and Sean Green were the only three Jews in Dodger... single Jews in Dodger Stadium... <laughs> And she said Sean Green was too good looking and too rich and young, so she took me. Um, but though I haven't had objective crises, if some of you wonder why you're here, I mean, there was no alcoholism. Plus, in Jewish families, there's no alcoholism, there's no, there's no, there's no nothing. We're just a we're just perfect breed of people. Um, but if you wonder what got you here and you don't have objective trauma and you weren't abused, or, or it, we ca- I came by my eating issues honestly. And it's not about, for me, I've learned that it's about 449 acceptance of the reality of my life. It's about being honest. It's about accepting that that I am a compulsive overeater. Uh, aren't these cool? I love, I want, I, <laughs> I mean, life can't get any better than this. <laughs> yeah, sure, it could. Um, what did I write down? Action, 449 acceptance. I talk to my sponsor almost every day. I would use both my wife and my therapist as resources in certainly different ways, but similar ways. Um, Doing my work, working my program. Terrell said to me two and a half years ago, you're in program, but you're not working a program. And it's really, I wouldn't have known the difference, and I probably argued with him emphatically. And he was right. So today I work a program. So when Diane said, do I want to come up to a panel when I can walk around and schmooze? I like schmoozing. Diane's not a schmoozer. I'm a schmoozer. Uh, it pisses her off. I'm a better schmoozer than she is. But I don't want to be here because then I had to sit here. And God forbid, I had to listen to people. And I'd rather come here and flit around and, you know, drink a bunch of diet drinks and then go home. Uh, But I did my service, damn it. But that's not what recovery is about. Um, And the last thing also is there's an outside body of spiritual, religious stuff. And uh, it is what it is. But there's a quote in there that says, On thy action be thy focus, never on its fruits. For the record, it's the Bhagavad Gita. But anyway, on thy action be thy focus, never on its fruits. So what I get to do is the crisis happens. I get to breathe deeply. This is exactly what I do. I breathe deeply. Probably talk to my sponsor. Try to connect to God. But for me, it works through people. Uh, Practice the Hippocratic Oath and try not to to do any harm. And um, it's ready aim fire, not ready fire aim. And to trust that um, I'm going to be okay. Okay. Because the miracles of recovery say so. The program says so. I have a loving higher power today that carries me no matter what. And if I really took the third step and turned my life and my will over and I'm willing to work the 11th step, which is about praying for God's will and the power to carry that out, then I don't have a problem in the world. And either there would have been three speakers or four speakers or no speakers, and everything would have been fine because it really is, it always was, and it always will be. If you're new, that's the miracle of recovery. Uh, Keep coming back. Thanks.
0: Okay. Hi. Um, the meeting is now open to questions for floor from the panelists. We ask that panelists limit your answers to three minutes and confine your share to your experience, strength, and hope on the topic discussed today. The session is scheduled to end at 9:45, which is like in six minutes. So maybe what we can do is we can have a quick group conscience if we want to um, extend that. The next thing starts at 10:15. So except for the 10 o'clock meetings. So you will have 30 minutes to get to the next thing. So I guess all in favor of extending it 10 minutes to 9.55, please raise your hand. And all opposed? Okay, great. Um, The ayes win. And so if you need to leave early, you want to leave, please feel free to leave. So um, I guess if you have a question, there's no one here recording or thing. um, I guess come up here to the podium and, Jack, you can give them
3: that Um, mic just so they they can hear hear it.
0: Yell it out and
3: the, Yeah. My, let my action be my focus. On um, thy action be thy focus, never on its fruits. But, you know, the, certainly all the religions, certainly the 12 step religion, certainly all, it, it's said in a many different ways in many different places, but we focus on the action and the footwork and the results are out of our hands. So it's, what they say in the boat keep praying, but keep rowing. You know? I didn't think that was real, by the way. I actually saw it on a plaque in the ship once. It said, if there's an emergency and you're out in the water, keep rowing. Keep praying, but keep rowing. <laughs> so I thought that's, that's kind of program wisdom.
0: That's great. Does anybody have any questions for any of our panelists? Hi, I'm Lisa McHenry, Eater. Hi, Lisa. Hi Lisa.
3: What is the benefit of praying for the willingness to be comfortable? Uncomfortable. To be
1: uncomfortable. (laughs) Lunch
3: would be the willingness to be uncomfortable.
1: Okay. I'm Kia Compulsive Eater. You know, I learned something interesting that's really been very helpful um, about the function of pain and discomfort. The function of pain is really to let you know that there's something wrong. So if you have a physical pain, the physical pain is letting you know something in your body, something needs to change, you need to get something checked out. If there's emotional pain, then there's some situation, there's something, maybe it's you that needs to change, but something needs to change. So pain and discomfort have a function. And so the wisdom of praying for that and the wisdom of – and then the help and benefit of getting that is that now I don't have to be afraid of discomfort. I don't have to be afraid of pain. I can just say, okay, something's wrong. Something's not feeling right either in my body or in my spirit. So that's giving me a clue that I need to take some action here.
3: And I I also see it as like the uh, dashboard on the car. If I'm – it just says my – the trunk is open or uh, I need gas or oil. It just – It's an objectively benign phenomena, though it doesn't feel good, that's telling me something is amiss. And there's an action I've got to take. Also, I was reading recently, Terrell had me reading the seven-step in AA, and we talk about um, comfort versus um, character building and about that conflict. And we we are more pulled, I am more pulled towards the, the almost organic propensity to want to be more comfortable and character building. I've been taught doesn't always allow for that comfort. And I remember reading outside literature, but it's a famous book from the 70s or 80s uh, that I won't mention, but the first paragraph, the first paragraph, the first line, first sentence, first paragraph is life is difficult. Mm -hmm. And he says that once you really get that life is difficult, the second paragraph says, the fact that it's difficult doesn't matter anymore. It's like, yeah, it's like if you exercise, he says, you're gonna hurt. If you don't exercise, eventually you're gonna hurt. Uh-huh. so why exercise which is what but which is what I've always believed however he said that one of them is a legitimate pain of growth uh-huh. and the exercise is a legitimate pain of growth that'll get you somewhere sitting on my ass and not doing anything even physically uh, it's got nowhere to go and so I'm not prone as, especially as an obese person and as a hundred pounder I'm just prone towards sitting around just you know I just want to sit around I don't want to sweat I don't want to work I don't want to do, and yet program is the 180 antithesis. So it's built. You know, pain, pain is the touchstone of growth. I don't. I don't motivate. I don't learn. I don't change if I'm not hurting. And that's just me. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Yeah. Hi, back there. Hi, Debbie. Hi,
2: Debbie. Um, I'm Millie, compulsive overeater. Uh, In my situation, I was totally powerless. So I I just took the first step. You know, I'm I'm powerless over the fact that my leg is screwed up and my life is unmanageable. I came to believe that a, a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I worked the steps on it. There was nothing else I could do. I had to accept it, let it go, use this program, work these steps, in order to be able to handle it. You know, I just wanted to to briefly touch on the, on the question beforehand. You know, there's a little statement that, that says, you know, we often learn more from ten days of agony than we do from ten years of contentment. And so, you know, that, that is, it's, it's all a learning process, you know. In this program, these steps teach me how to deal with it.
1: For me, Tia... Um... I think it's been the track record. That's really, for me, what has been most faith-giving is 38 years I've been on this earth, and in 38 years, God has never let me down. Not one time. Even in the times I thought, oh, wow, how is this going to turn out? It always turned out. So, in any, I mean, I have more faith in that track, track record than I have in any, other human, any human relationship that I could have. But I trust people. Historically, I have trusted people more than I've trusted God. Why? Uh, not really sure about what that was, go- you know, what was going on with that. But when you have that kind of a track record, I mean, unless I'm just going to be like, unless I'm just going to not l- look at the evidence. That's what it is. I guess I'm trying to say it's the evidence of how God has worked in my life. That's what gives me the faith. And I remember, well, it worked last time, so I have no reason to believe that it won't. Hi, Tina.
3: Hi, Tina.
2: Only two things we need to know about God: number one, He exists; number two, you're not it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you step back and completely
3: surrender and let go, the miracles just flow. Mm-hmm. So, in, thank you. you know, in, in, almost in response to that non-question, I went river ra- <laughs> just before program in '81. I went river rafting for the first and only time. I loved it, and the guy said, "If you fall out of the boat." He said, don't flail. He said, the people who flail get hurt, and the people who don't flail, who just throw their hands up and kind of literally go with the flow. And I thought this guy was nuts. So about 95% through the the run, I don't know what I was thinking. I jumped out, (laughs) and I let go to the best of my ability and closed my eyes and kind of looked like you did, apparently. (laughs) And next thing I knew, I got to the bottom of the run and looked around and all my limbs seemed to be there, and I was no worse for wear. And then I came in the program, probably a year, a year or two later. And the whole premise—a one of the many premises—was the results were nil until we let go absolutely. And the thought of that is preposterous because it's against every. But if that guy was right, the people who flail get hurt. And in this program, from my experience, the people who flail—I don't know if they get hurt. They just don't get peacefully to the to the, to the next. Uh, Places on the journey.
1: Thank you. This is Kia um, I what I do is I have a God box and in my God box goes every single thing that I feel really overwhelmed about. I spend time in prayer I usually do it at night because it's usually something that's keeping me up and I, if I want to have a chance at sleep nighttime you know doing it right before I go to bed is usually the best way. I write it on a slip of paper I pray very hard about it I pray for release from it whatever it is. I accept that I may still have the need to kind of pick and play with it, if that's what it is, if I have something to learn from that process, but I am willing, and that's really key for me, is that I have to be willing to let whatever it is go, go. And that box is probably filled with, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 things over the last five or six years, and I have to say there's not one thing in that box that hasn't been dealt with and dealt with to my benefit.
2: Yeah, this this is Millie. What I do is I call someone. I, I need to, when I'm in that sheer panic mode, I need to talk to someone. I need to get it out of my head because, you know, like I've heard it said in this program, my head is a dangerous neighborhood, and I don't go there alone. <clears throat> and I, so I need to talk to someone. Um, I either call my sponsor or I call a good friend in program. I, I call someone that I trust. And um, you know th- that's what I do, and, and I walk through it with them. I I try not to go there alone.
0: That's great. Okay, last question. Thank you. That's it. This is all the time we have for sharing. It's now time to close the session. Um, thank you again to our speakers and Jack for jumping in for us, Millie, Kia, and Jack. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tape, table order to order copies of this session or any of the other sessions. Like maybe there was one going on when we were here and you had to miss that one. All workshops and the main speaker events are being recorded and available on CD or as MP3s for electronic download. Will all who care to please join hands as we close with the OI Promise, which is I put my hand in yours, the whole prayer. If so. you do phone meetings, they do the first line, and I'm sorry, that's a problem I personally have with those meetings. <laughs> We have our first (laughs) crisis. Cool. Just one more second. Okay. I put my hand in yours, and together we can do what we could never do alone. No longer is there a sense of hopelessness. No longer much we each depend upon our own unsteady willpower. We are all together now, reaching out our hands for a power and strength greater than ours. And as we join hands, we find love and understanding beyond our wildest dreams. Keep coming back. It works, it works. if you work it's it. So okay. work Red it because you're Red worth, Red worth it. it. Hey. Red <laughs> Rover, Red Rover, Rover. Oh, Thank you.
2: You too. We
0: all did good. Nice to Thank you. All the way out here to see you.
3: I need help. I need help getting down the stairs. I know. I can't. I was there last Sunday. What a a great meeting. there. Um, Oh, you know what happened last Sunday? And then I wound up going outside. Jeff's son was playing a Little League game. Oh, my God. Yes. How are you? He was playing Little League in their park.